I wasn't expecting this. No, but. he wasn't. <laughs> but I do believe in baptism by fire. <laughs> Our, our great Father and God, uh, creator of heaven and earth, you are an awesome God. We come here, Lord, to learn more of your word and uh, be enlightened by your spirit and give us uh, true knowledge and understanding of your truth. Uh, bless our, our teacher today that uh, we'll have open ears and open hearts to receive your message today. And help us, Lord, to uh, be faithful servants in your kingdom because we want to be ready for your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, my friends, we're racing to the conclusion of the book we have today and one more week after this on Beyond Beliefs. Then, the 22nd of December, we'll have a one-time class in here on the topic of angels, uh, particularly angels as involved in the birth of Jesus. And then sometime in the spring, February and March, we will be having a whole course on angels. So, yes. In January, Dr. Lloyd will be back. We believe this topic is going to be on the letters of Paul. Remember Dr. Lloyd is Well, I don't know what his actual specialty is, but he seems to be some sort of uh, literature specialist. Rhetoric. Right. Rhetoric. The, the, I took one of his courses in rhetoric, mm -hmm. uh, and he also teaches the Bible as, as literature and, and the Bible's arguments from a rhetorician standpoint. Or mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because uh, Augustine, the great uh, Christian theologian, that's what he uh, was in university in his day. He was a teacher of rhetoric, which is literature, speech, communication, argument, logic. So you'll have a great treat in having this man come. All right, we're here. Um, let's start out this morning with a little look at the scriptures. I want you to find these two texts, <coughs> Ephesians 2, 19 through 23, and Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, uh, this being a Presbyterian church, you're out of luck. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Where, where are they, Pastor? The Bibles. Oh, okay. All right. I, I know, it's pervasive. It's systemic. Okay. Um, and the mic is still here. So, Marty, why don't you start? Do you have a text? Uh, no, I don't. I'll read Terry's. All right, read Terry's. Ephesians what? Um, 2, 19 to 20. Okay, Ephesians 2, 19 to 23. Yes. What you're looking for is what is similar between these two texts, okay? okay. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure- Sorry, sorry, sorry. Oop. Synaptic break. I'm so shook up about the game yesterday that- <laughs> Okay, Ephesians what? One. Ephesians one. So sorry. Okay. 
Okay. So sorry. The other part was for free, no charge. Okay. Ephesians 1, 19. Okay. <coughs> you sure the rest is right? Because we're yeah, starting mid-sentence. Yeah. Okay. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated, it, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, thank you. Now, keep your finger there because we're going to bounce back and forth. Uh, go over to Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And let me have that mic. Kindly read for us. Yes, I'm sure. Positive. Six seven. Yes, four, six through seven. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Okay, now let's flip back and forth. What can you see that is similar between these two passages? The theme today is returning to God as peace and power, power and peace. Two chapters we're doing. We're going to fuse these two together. And who can see? That's okay. What is similar? God is the, or Jesus is the most powerful force. God set things up for that to be true in the past, present, and future. Okay. Very good. Um, now, you, the one thing that you said was really at the heart of it. You said most powerful. Yeah, most powerful. So he, it's a com he's, he's noting the comparative statement. There's a comparison being made. In Ephesians, there's a comparison made between Christ and who or what. Your first time here, but that's okay. You can talk. Uh, yes, but what is he most, what it, when he compares Christ, he's most powerful or beyond what? What's he comparing Christ to? All other powers. And what does he say that, he makes a definitional statement, an adjectival qualifier when he comes, Comparing the power of Christ to all other powers. What does he say about that power? That is above. above. Does he make, okay, above, how far above? Uh, far above. Far above. 
um, incomparably above. No way to actually compare the power of Christ to any other power that exists. Okay. Uh, Now, over to Philippians 4. Does he make a comparative statement there? This is, of course, the peace. He's talking about the peace of Christ. Yes. Beyond our understanding. Now, you wouldn't know this unless you know Greek, but both of these texts use... uh, what is hype, by the way? We use it in our culture today. Hype. Exaggerate. To exaggerate? To hype something? To bring attention to something? Susan? Yeah, it's just a comparative statement. Yeah. Anybody else? In our culture today, when you hype something, it's usually, is it negative or positive? Hype. A lot of hype. We say that all the time in our culture. So what do we mean when we say that's a lot of hype? Smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors, okay. Thank you. What a scholar. Hyper or hypo. Yes, in Greek, hyper is always a comparative and it means beyond. Something, it's a comparative technique when you want to make a statement beyond. Now, both of these texts in Greek use the term hyper, where we get hype, and they're saying something is beyond something else. This one, on the power, is comparing what to what? God's power, Christ's power, to anything else that is power. And again, just anchored in your mind, he makes us understand. Christ's power is? Above. Above, far beyond, hyper, no comparison to any other power that exists. In Philippians 4, the topic is peace, and he says that Christ's peace is beyond what? Our minds, our understanding. Okay, so uh, that's one of the reasons why I named the book Beyond Beliefs, because the New Testament frequently talks about states of consciousness or experiences that are beyond, beyond what we can rationally conceive of. And that's what this text is doing. Okay, so now what we want to do is see the very interesting, uh, you know, I don't want this to be a political thing today, but I think we've so moved away from the political when you read the New Testament that we've forgotten that Jesus Christ was born (coughs) into a world in which who was ruling and reigning? The Romans. And they were the ones that were defining uh, law, reality, and the way things are. And so uh, when you can see when Christ starts talking about himself being a king, uh, this is one of the things that made the the Romans very nervous. Now, who has heard this term? I know many of you have. Pax Romana. Peace of Rome. What does it actually mean? Does anyone know the time frame in which the Pax Romana was most manifested? What happened in 10th grade history? (laughs) 
Uh, 27 B.C. to about 180 A.D. is the technical period in which Pax Romana was in place. started in the reign of Augustus and went on long past, uh, actually, Jesus' birth. About a 200-year period in which uh, peace, the Roman peace, was firmly ensconced all over the Mediterranean. So we got the time, about a 200-year period. Now, of course, comparing this to Pax Christos, the peace of Christ, when did his peace start? Ah, uh, yes, but um, that's referring to the, uh, oh boy, I hate to use this word, the ontological, the being nature of Jesus. Uh, from eternity, yes, but when did the peace of Christ enter this world and become a, yes? Well, let's say it's maybe when Jesus quoted his famous line, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Oh, thank you, Jim. <laughs> All right, that's brilliant, honestly. Not as, that's another comparative statement, right? So, you know, Jesus is speak, living, functioning, and teaching against the backdrop of the Pax Romana, uh, and so he says, this is a different kind of thing. Uh, now that we're on that topic that you've led us down there, uh, at his trial, the master said what to Pilate? My kingdom, not of this world. So the master uh, made very clear that what he was about was not what this was about. So here we have uh, about a 200-year period, starting in 27 B.C., with the reign of Augustus, in which Rome, uh, using its power, its political power, uh, successfully, it's not that there wasn't any war, but it was a time of unprecedented um, enforced peace. Um, definition. Who wants to give a stab at Pax Romana? I got a text for us that we're going to read, but uh, there, there were uh, yes, thank you. Uh, Augustus actually brought back all the generals from the foreign outpost and said, "Okay, we, we need to stabilize." Brought them all back, and they focused on what's going on inside of this. Uh, territory that the Romans controlled. So it was uh, inside the Roman Empire. You were going to say? Oh, you weren't. Okay. <laughs> okay. So this is a, um, a definition of inside the Roman Empire, there were very little conflicts. Now, there were still wars going on outside, still skirmishes going on outside of the Roman Empire. But inside, a time of unprecedented uh, lack of conflict uh, in... Yes, Susan. Yes, Roman law was uh, promulgated, they had courts, and they had the power to back up these laws, and so they enforced it. Now, I want you to go over to the book of Mark, and I want you to look at chapter 10. We need somebody who really loves to read. Maybe somebody that has a little um, theatrical training. Oh, 
What it? Not over the top. Not over the top theatrics, but let's read it. Who would like to do it? Um, I want you to start at verse 33. We're going to go down to verse 45. This, according to all scholarly consensus, is the heart and core of the Gospel of Mark. And in a minute, I'm going to tell you why the Gospel of Mark is so important to this discussion. Start at 33 and go yep. to where? 45. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and he will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. It's a brilliant text, but I think you're in Matthew. You do? I'm in Mark 10. Oh. Do you want me somewhere you're right. else? You're right, 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 yeah. I'm having a little synaptic break. I actually wanted to, you start at 35, so. You want me to start yeah, at 35? I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm giving you the wrong numbers today. All right. Please forgive okay. me. Okay, because I try really hard. Okay. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. <laughs> they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Oh. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptized baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Okay, now let's stop right here. What's going on here? Power. Right and left. The, the cool thing is, is that in the other gospel account uh, in Matthew, uh, it, it tells us that it was actually their mother that instigated this conversation. Wow. So uh, a good old Jewish mother wanting her sons to be promoted caused this whole thing. They put her sons up to it. Okay, power. Okay, now go on. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. What's going on there? Jealousy power. Power. <laughs> you're going to get, you, you're trying to put yourself above us. You're going to dominate us. You're going to rule over us. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's going on here? He turns it upside down. He turns it upside down. Somebody wrote a book called The Upside Down Kingdom. Who wrote that book? I don't know. I forget. Ron Sider. Ron Sider, The Upside Down Kingdom, yeah. Um, so the master turns it over, and, you know, look, Jesus was not... Uh, some little mystic who didn't understand how the world was working. He understood Pax Romana. What does he say? You understand, this is the way the world works. How does the world work according to the master? Those who are in authority lord it over the other ones. Yes. Lord. And in Greek, it's uh, <clears throat> the basically where we get dominion, to, to dominate. 
This is the way the world works, Jesus said. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, they gain power <clears throat> and they lord it over other people. They dominate them. That's how they get peace. That's how they get, they use their power to get peace. And in other words, it's an enforced, imposed, controlled state of affairs. Now, what does he say? The, oh, no, over <coughs> here he says, how is it going to be with you? Servant leaders. So here's a big lesson in the life of Jesus' followers. Now, you might ask, how is it possible that they've been hanging out with him for roughly three years now, and they're still thinking about sitting on thrones and dominating other people? And the answer is what? How is it, that po how is it possible that they could even bring this up to the master? Humanity. Humanity. Like, uh, these are people are weird, the disciples are weird. Read church history. What happens? It's the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, this definition of peace and power, the worldly definition, easily creeps into the church and has crept into the church. And so we think that we're going to get a position and going to rule and reign and tell other people what to do. And by doing that, we're going to achieve some sort of peace and stability. The master says, no. How's it going to be among you? The, ones, the one that will be the greatest is the one that's at the bottom and serves. And then he extracts the, the main lesson out of the whole gospel of Mark and his whole life. What does he say about himself? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to do what? Give his life as a ransom for many. Now, uh, Cindy Friley, uh, you have drilled through uh, the book of Eusebius. Do you remember what uh, Eusebius, church history, written in 325 A.D., what does he say, uh, and this is awful to put you on the spot like this, but what does he say about uh, the Gospel of Mark? <laughs> Anyone else? The Gospel of Mark? <laughs> you got to go home today and drill into that section of Eusebius. How did the Gospel of Mark come to be? Okay, find 1 Peter 5.13. Ah. Uh, um, I don't know yet. <laughs> it's background. 1 Peter 5.13, I think, from memory. Yes. Yes. She who is in Babylon sends you her greetings. Who's the she? The church. What's Babylon? Nickname for Rome that the early Christians used. And uh, if you want to really drill into this, you can go over to Revelation, later afternoon, don't watch the Browns, because you can only handle so much heartbreak in one weekend. Oh, what am I doing? Man, my, my mind is like shattered today. 
Revelation 17 is a um, personification of the Roman Empire in which the Roman Empire is described as what? Those of you who are scrambling to get to that text. Yes, the mother of all harlots, the great prostitute. If it was written today, she'd be called the great street Bible. Can you believe that? The, the John calls the government that has instituted Pax Romana, calls that government a great whore. What would you do if you went into a church uh, today and some preacher was up there powering out uh, a, uh, a sermon and called America the great prostitute, the great whore, the mother of harlotry? What would, they, what would we say in our culture today? Well, well, we, well, yeah. <laughs> well, you just told me where you're coming from. Um, but what would we say? What would be some of the... Unpatriotic. Unchristian. Uh, uh, intolerant. That's very judgmental. Um, not politically correct. Mixing religion and politics. You're not allowed to do that per Tom Jefferson, who said there was this big wall. You're not allowed to, to do that. But yet, here we have in the Apostles the... Description of Pax Romana as a great whore, and she's using her power to seduce the nations of the world into a false peace. Now, when Peter says, she who is in Babylon sends you her greetings, that's code language. And by the way, if you're going to start calling your government a great whore, and if you're going to do that in Rome... You're not going to do that out loud. By the way, that's, how, uh, that's why hip-hop and all of the uh, um, uh, language that is used by the uh, un so-called underclass in our culture, that's why it's all in code. Because you can get away with saying things in code that you cannot say blatantly. So when Peter says, she who is in Babylon sends you his greetings, let's decode it. What's he really saying? The church... The church that is in Rome, sends you her greetings. Now we found out what? Peter is in Rome. What's he doing in Rome? He's proclaiming Christ. He's teaching there. And uh, is there anything else in that text that, that helps us understand why I'm talking about all this stuff? And so does my son Mark. And so does my son Mark. So now we know what? Mark was with Peter. What's he doing there? What's Mark doing? We know from Eusebius that uh, he was Peter's uh, technical term, amanuensis. He was his secretary, uh, translator, and he learned and listened to Peter's preaching over and over again. And you, do you remember now what Eusebius told us about Peter's preaching? Sorry. I should have called you and said I'm going to grill you today. <laughs> he says that Peter never prepared his sermons ahead of time, but he spoke spontaneously to the crowd based on what was going on at the time. And so when you read the Gospel of Mark, what you find is 
there's these little stories linked together, then usually a little teaching, and then more stories of Jesus in action, Jesus serving others, Jesus the man of action, Jesus the servant. That's how the whole gospel is structured. Now that we know this from Eusebius, it's very clear what happened. That Peter would tell these little stories of what Jesus did, boom, 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 tailored to the audience, and Mark listened to them over and over and over again. And then Eusebius tells us that near the end of Peter's life, when it was becoming clear that Rome, and Nero particularly, was going to do some sort of uh, action against the apostles, the elders of the Church of Rome came to Mark and said, would you please give us a record of Peter's teaching in writing? And so when you read the Gospel of Mark, what are you reading? Peter's, that's Peter's Gospel. Mark never knew Jesus. Mark was a teenager during Jesus' life. He was raised in Jerusalem. So, why is this interesting? The heart and core of the Gospel of Mark, which is Peter's preaching in Rome, we just read it. What's the heart and core? Mark 10, 35 through 45. What's the essence and the heart of the whole Gospel? Power. Power. We are in a conflict of power. And the master says, this is how the world defines power. How does the world define power? Force, control, domination. One group of people seizing control over other people and dictating to them, this is the way it's going to be. And when they did, and by the way, I, I mean, it was better, I mean, you could say all that you want about Rome. <clears throat> But who would you rather live under, Roman rule or, say, for example, um, Saddam. Uh, Saddam Hussein? Or uh, who would you rather live under, Rome or uh, Genghis Khan? <laughs> so for all of its deficits, it did do one thing. It established some form of lawful authority, and they weren't all wicked. You know, it was, it was a way, and you know, the Romans finally got around, they, they finally just woke up one morning, a long time before this era, and said, look, somebody's going to run the world. Somebody's got to run the world. It might as well be us. So they, they, get, they seized control and they did it. Now the master is speaking in the backdrop of Pax Romana and is now making what, isn't just a religious statement, it is a radical political statement. What is he saying? That the way the world works is not the way God works. Now let, just let that settle in. Yes, he did. <clears throat> in the garden, when Jesus was arrested. Now, the thing is, I got a long section of this in my master's thesis, by the way. It's fascinating reading, especially if you have a hard time going to sleep at night. <laughs> I recommend you get it. What, what was Peter? What did he do for a living? Fisherman. Fisherman. What do fishermen have? Uh, hooks. hooks. Nets. Nets. And knives. I don't think Peter had a 
Roman short sword, and there's a lot of good reasons why not. A Jew walking around with a Roman short sword about this long would be what? Very suspicious. I think he had a nice little boning knife. And when the master was arrested, what did Peter do? Yeah, he, he, he inadvertently cut off this guy's name, Malchus. He inadvertently cut off his ear. What was he actually trying to do? He was trying to kill him. He missed. <laughs> to me, this is one of the most amazing stories in all of the Gospels because in the midst of this melee, this uh, chaos, all these people running around, they're trying to grab Jesus. Uh, a, a knife comes out. Uh, we're in a knife fight, and somebody gets their ear whacked off. What does the master do? takes the time to bend down, pick up the ear, put it back on Malchus's head, and heal. Then he turns to Jesus and says what? Put up your knife because the reason is all Ah, uh, well, he did say that too, yes. It's a, don't you think I could call upon the angels of God and they'd rescue me? You don't need to do this. You don't need to use earthly power. But he, he gives them another reason, too. There's a whole bunch of things that the master said right in that context. All who live by the sword will die by the sword. So, yes, that is a descriptive statement. And here we find what's, you know, there's no big deal. So the disciples are gradually, slowly being moved from this kind of perspective over to this perspective, and at the point of conflict, when their, their teacher is going to be arrested and taken to jail, what happens to them? Do they go this way? No, they go this way. Just like all of us probably would put up against the wall if you saw one of your loved ones. It would be the easiest thing in the world to take out your... Uh, um, your stiletto or whatever you guys carry, your little uh, uh, 45 hidden uh, in your Swiss Army knife. or You're going to take something out, a baseball bat, and try to defend your loved one. So this is descriptive, but we know it's descriptive and not prescriptive because Jesus said on that occasion, what? Don't do this. Put it up. This is the way the world works. P a power force uh, violence to get its way, no, you're going over here into another kind of a kingdom. Okay. So the Pax Christos is going to be a totally different kind of peace. Yes, Susan. This is passive and aggressive. It induce passive, induces passivity among those who are being dominated, if you know what's good for you. And it's aggression on the top, downward. Well, yeah, and, and once you learn the system, then all the people down here, they're upwards, passive to those ahead of them, uh, above them, and downward to those who that they're ruling over. Aggressive. But it's not aggressive, 
It's, this is not passive. It's, it's a different. It's a different kind of power. We have it. Okay, so this kind of power is, um, it's not weak. It's more powerful because the first text that we looked, they, the Romans killed Jesus, but it says what? God did what? Raised him from the dead and put him, and then he gives this ranking type thing, all these powers. And by the way, speaking of angels, those powers that he mentions in Ephesians 1 aren't the earthly powers. They are the angelic powers, the evil angelic powers that are ruling over this world and inducing some humans to follow their pattern. When God raised Christ from the dead, what did he do? How far above did he take Jesus above these powers? Far beyond. So now you have a model for how we are to conduct ourselves in the world. So let's draw another picture. Now, who wants to say something to this? This is, we're, we're getting at it. We're getting to the heart of it. Yes. I'm having a little difficulty with the, the total separation there that Caesar's respect for the law, but at the same time preaching his ministry as opposed to That is so great, because I was going to tell you at the end of the class, two movies that you need to see if you want to kind of get into this. Uh, who has seen 12 Years a Slave? Okay, now that's a great movie to go see, because in that movie you see uh, a display of worldly power, one group of people dominating another group of people, uh, and... Um, you know, the, the slave owners, they, they took care of the slaves to a certain extent. They had, uh, what, food, and uh, they, uh, what? A place. They gave them a place to live, and it was in their self-interest, obviously. They didn't care about them. They had to care for them because why? Uh, I read the other day that uh, the, the amount of money invested in slaves during that era was far beyond any other measurement of wealth in the whole country. Isn't that amazing? The amount of money invested in slaves was far beyond any other source of wealth in our country at that time. So it was in their self-interest to take care of them to a certain degree. So it was 
power and peace imposed down on a people. But, like Abraham Lincoln said, and what did he say on this topic? If you think it's so good to be a slave, why don't you become one? That was a rough paraphrase, but he, he did express that sentiment. You think slavery is okay? You think it's legitimate? You think it's moral? Go ahead and become one and see how you like it. Now, the second movie would be Mandela. I'm not saying that he was a Christian saint, but in fact, what, what did he do? He, he led a movement that was predicated upon what? Worldly power? Servant leadership. And so, you know, in the 20th century, we have many examples of people who have used nonviolent resistance, which is what you're saying. It's not passive. Nonviolent resistance based on a moral ideal that have greatly changed societies. Can you think of the other one? There's a couple more in the 20th century. You got Mandela. Isn't the US Constitution directed directly to this point of power and who has it? Tell us what you're thinking. Well, the power from Rome comes from the top. Yes. The US Constitution says it'll come from the bottom. The people have the power. The beginning, and that's where the power is in the people. That's the and way it was supposed to be, yes. Well, that's right, and, that's, and it was further designed so that no majority will have the rule over the minority. Okay, so... That's an answer to this question. It is, it is a political answer from Pax Romana to, and you'll see this term if you look at it in the literature, uh, Pax Americana, what's that? And at a certain point, well now what was George Washington's final comment as he left office? What did he tell his fellow Americans? What did he tell them? Uh, be careful, yes. <laughs> That's a general good piece of advice to all of us. Be careful today. But what he's been, ah, getting warm. Don't get entangled. Uh, in foreign wars. Do your own thing here. Let the rest of the world do its own thing. Don't assume the role of what? World's peacekeeper. World's uh a police officer. Uh, don't make the mistake of Pax Romana, which is, okay, we're going to get power, and we're going to institute our own culture, and then we're going to establish ourselves. Let me see if I can draw a little throne here. Uh, we're going to establish ourselves as what? Rulers of the world, and we're going to tell everybody else how they're supposed to live. Don't do that. The American Constitution and George Washington envision, envisioned what? They envisioned what? How did they see things working out? What did they want to see? How did they think it was going to work out? How did they think it should work well, out? Work out. Well, they didn't, but they had a vision for it. 
Yes, from the bottom, as George said, up, you would have a culture adhering to a certain set of ideals. Minus and women and slaves. I, <laughs> see, I wasn't going to bring that up because I don't want to ruin George's point, but yes, minus women and slaves. If you were white and had... Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. They, they did, yes, I know. They did the best they could. But now what is the difference between Pax Americana and Pax Romana now? Not much. <laughs> I'm not here to beat Rome or America up. I'm just trying to show you that descriptively, this is what humans do. They start off with the greatest of ideals, and then eventually the conclusion comes, well, somebody's got to run this world, and it might as well be us. Yes, sir. This has become Christianized. Aha. But what did good old Eusebius do in 325 AD? What did he think about Constantine's assumption of uh, the role of emperor? He thought it was the greatest thing in the world. In fact, most of the Christians saw their, uh, whatever you want to call it, their leavening of Pax Romana to be God's will, and now we have a Christian emperor. And now Constantine, Constantine has this vision. He sees this thing in the sky one day. You know what that is? The, chi the Cairo. And he had that symbol stitched into all of the clothing of his soldiers. And the voice supposedly said to him, by this sign conquer. And eventually he wound up and found out what? This is the sign of Christ. And so... Now we've got a political system with Christ at the head doing what? Raping, pillaging, and you, well, boy, you guys are negative today. <laughs> I was going to say uh, using their power to ensure peace. But yes, there was a lot of raping and pillaging. Eusebius thought this was the greatest thing in the world. Now, this piece is a state of affairs predicating the use of power. Judge, I don't know if we're getting to your point. Uh, I don't know how much hay you can make about give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, it was a trick question. They were trying to trap him. They showed him a coin with Caesar's mug on it. And they said, well, the master's being so slick. He said, well, <laughs> whose picture is this? Oh, it's Caesar's. He said, well, give it to him. Because the master believed what? That what you should give to Caesar was if he claims that you owe this to him, in other words, acknowledge it, but God has stamped God's image where? In us. Give that to God. You've been made in the image of God. Give that to God. And let Caesar have what Caesar wants. Yes? Well, let's uh, leave the trick question aside, but taking John's argument one step further into Paul's teaching, where he tells us that the civil authorities are placed where they are placed by God, and we are to show respect and and stay out of the way of uh, and and don't run afoul of the of the civil authority. Yes, and that's and not a trick. That's a no, that's theory. not a trick. Now, here's the twisty though. 
you've got this text in Romans 13 butted up in the New Testament with this text over here in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. Now here Paul says what? Any authority that exists in this world, what does he say about it? Any authority that exists in this world, it's been instituted by God. Now, here's the twisty. Does he mean that God directly set those governments up, A, or does he mean in the sovereignty of God, God has allowed whatever authority that does exist to exist? Does he mean God set it up directly or that God allowed it? Because uh, is he making a descriptive statement? This is the way it is, and God's sovereign, and so whatever government exists, you can be assured nothing happens in this world without God allowing it. Or is he saying, God set it up, and therefore that's why you should obey? Well, is it not, is it not possible that we don't know in every case? We don't. God certainly would have the power to declare, my goodness, the world needs Churchill today. And I'm going to place Churchill in the dominant position of the 20th century. That's what uh, Eusebius's point about Constantine was. Look, we, the church has been ravaged now for uh, hundreds of years. God finally had God say and installed Constantine as the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now we have what? Pax. Okay. I want to get back to this because this is... Can you think, Jim, and anybody else, are there times that political authorities have existed that you would say, no, God could not have set that up. Hitler. Uh, what do you mean, Joseph? Well, then that would be an instance in which God actually raised somebody that's being oppressed. It would be like a Mandela story almost. You, you move from uh, being a slave to the, uh, the leader. But somebody said, Hitler, Hitler you can't, you, you don't want to get yourself intellectually in the position of saying, well, God sets up all the th authorities that exist, and therefore now you have to defend and believe that God set Hitler up. Right? We don't want to do that. Yes, sir. They did, didn't they? And in fact, in, um, he said that the evangelical church in Germany actually did come to that conclusion. Except in 1933, a bunch of people got together in Germany and they wrote what is called the Barman Declaration in which they said Hitler is an antichrist. They blatantly said that. But the vast majority of Christians... Uh, uh, went along with Hitler and said, oh yeah, this is God's man. God is on the side of the strongest battalion. But that's like another way of saying what? Might makes right. Whoever wins is right. That's why 
Lincoln, in his second inaugural, wrestled with this. Go back and read the second inaugur inaugural address in which he says, look, we just went through this war. One side did what? You, you can, it's engraved in marble at the memorial. One side read the Bible. The other side read the Bible. One side prayed to God. The other side prayed. One side claimed God was on their side. The other side, and, and Lincoln's looking at this as the ultimate logician, and he says what? Well, what, how did he use his famous speech at uh, uh, Cooper Union, Union? He said what? A house? Divided. It doesn't make any sense. You can't have uh, one side praying to God, the other side, both sides claiming uh, God's on our side. That's what was going on at that time. And the North was particularly prone to this temptation because why? They won. God was on our side. What does Lincoln conclude? God had his own purposes. In fact, he actually concludes that God let that war happen as a mutual punishment for both sides because of the evil of slavery. That's exactly what he concludes. Yes, sir. Yeah. Going back to conscience. Yes. Yes. Man, why don't you just put it up on a T for me? <clears throat> yeah, let's cut to the chase. Well, let me answer you by going over here and asking you to read this text right here. Ephesians 2.14, because we're running out of time. And... Uh, We'll try to tie it together with this. Here's the difference. This kind of peace is a state of affairs. It's a state. One group of people dominates another or rules by law or whatever you want to say. It imposes down on everybody else a state of affairs, and then we call this peace. Over here, what does the New Testament really say peace is? This is mind-blowing. Jesus is our peace. So these people are putting their faith in a state of affairs. The New Testament asks you to put your faith in a person, not a state of affairs. And what your point is, is that the Christians in Germany put their faith in a state of affairs. With this man ruling, all will be well. What the Barman Declaration uh, asked Christians to return to was what? Peace as a person. Now, judge, you're a judge, and unless we're all going to become radical and strict Amish and go live on a farm somewhere, we're all enmeshed in this political system no matter where you live. The trick of the New Testament, I think, is... You live here under the system, you live under it, but you actually find your life where? This is your true life, true peace, true power. These, even under the best of conditions, are what? They're human. Now, I'm not... Go ahead, Judge. Well, I think that drives you to humility. Of your 
If you're here, the humility, you, you should never get seduced into believing that the state of affairs that any state or men bring about, or women, is what you're really depending upon. Because when you do, what happens is, even under the best of conditions, this is why the New Testament calls Rome ultimately a whore. Because why? You get schnookered, you get tricked, you get seduced if you put your faith in that state of affairs. What happens when you put your faith in a person, Jesus? True peace. True power. And it's ten... This is, a, this is a different kind of peace and power. This is a state of affairs of... This is the absence, supposedly, of conflict by force. This is... Peace by servanthood. And it's for all. This is for some. Dan. Yes. So in this model, what the Christians are supposed to do is they're supposed to be down here and they're supposed to be serving all. And if you re go and read this Ephesians 2 passage, and I think it starts at verse 11 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. This is just the key verse. He's suggesting that what God is doing in this world is building an international community comprised of everybody that follows Jesus, and they're supposed to radiate to the rest of the world this person of peace, Jesus. Yes, Susan? Very good point. Imposition, isolation. The Christian says, no, you're here don't get seduced and put your state of, uh, don't put your faith in a state. Live in the state and live out the Christian faith. Judge, does that make sense? Yes. yes. Don't be a political radical for just, for being a political radical sake, because if you overthrow the state that you live in, guess what's going to happen? Then just because somebody else is going to come along and replace it. No. Jesus is our peace. All right, God bless you, and uh, have a great day. Next week, we'll finish. Oh, now, I strongly urge you to read chapter 8. Which one? Chapter 8, eight. and read it 10 times a day. <laughs> now, read, read, read it a couple of times for next week, because it's really mind-blowing. It's our last session on this book. Uh, drill into it, and we'll have a great time next week. God bless you, and see you then.